we've overcome a lot of those challenges that these early technologies experience, right? We've done the testing, we've done the demonstrations, we're building the supply chain, we've gone through the regulatory process. And given you know, where we are in terms of, you know, kind of global energy crisis, what we're seeing in terms of power needs around the world, I think we're really well positioned to successfully get our first plant up and operating and then quickly thereafter get plant two and plant three running. Welcome to another episode of Professionals in Energy Podcast. My name is Mark Heineman, and I'm joined today by an awesome guest, Karen Feldman, with New Scale Power. Karen, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Mark. So happy to be here with you. Oh, I'm I'm stoked to talk to you. Uh, we've been trying to get someone from New Scale on the show for a long time now, so I'm very very excited to chat with you. We've got a lot to chat about. Um, so before we dive in, uh, why don't you give just kind of a quick intro about yourself, and then. I'd like to learn a little bit about your background before we, uh, before we get to NewScale. All right. So my title, my job title at NewScale is the Vice President of the Program Management Office. And basically what that means is I oversee the portfolio of projects that we are executing at NewScale. I've got a great team of project managers, project control specialists, risk managers, cost estimators, portfolio managers who, who take care of you know, helping our team get the work done that we're doing. And the projects we manage range from the development of our product to projects that we're doing for customers and licensing and, and, and internal projects for developing our infrastructure. So big variety of stuff. I also manage our DOE award agreement. I think you know that the Department of Energy has been a huge partner to us in the development of our technology. So that's uh, another great relationship I help manage. That's fantastic. And just real quick for listeners that might have been living under a rock for the past decade, uh, yeah, NewScale is a front runner in developing new uh, SMRs or small modular reactors and uh, have a license award from the NRC, which is uh, groundbreaking, um, very, very exciting. We like to say we're, we're changing the power that changes the world, right? We've got a, a, really, yeah. a really great you know, nuclear technology, new nuclear, something, you know, smarter, cleaner, cost competitive um, that we are really excited to roll out for, for, for the U.S. and around the world. Well, before we dive into New Scale, let's, uh, let's focus on your background a little bit. Where where'd you start? Where'd you go to school? Walk us through your career. Well, I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan, went to the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and got my undergraduate degree in nuclear engineering and radiological sciences. So from the University of Michigan, um, been in it for always have been interested. Nice. Yeah, always have been interested in engineering. Kind of started the undergrad, not exactly sure what I wanted to do. Um, went and toured the research reactor at the University of Michigan. I have to say, I um, it was this neat swimming pool reactor, and you could look down into the core and see the, the fission reaction happening there. And I thought that is really cool. Uh, and the other advantage of nuclear engineering is it's pretty cross-cutting, right? You're learning neutronics, you're learning thermohydraulics, but you also get a chance to take, you know, electrical engineering with electrical engineers and, you know, whatever, dynamics and statics with the mechanical engineers. And so you got a lot of a, a nice cross-cutting view of engineering. Anyway, did an undergrad in, in nuclear engineering at University of Michigan, went on to MIT, where I got a master's degree also in nuclear engineering. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, and then I went and I worked in the nuclear industry, but I didn't. <laughs> That's not what happened. 
um, after I finished my master's degree, I actually moved to California and started working in the aerospace industry. So my first job, you know, professional job was with uh, the Aerospace Corporation. It's a federally funded research and development center located in, in El Segundo, California. And they basically work with the United States Air Force to deploy space and launch systems, um, mostly for Air Force projects. And they do some civil and commercial work as well. So we did some work with, with JPL and other things. And you say, how does a nuclear engineer end up in aerospace? Um, no, maybe, I don't know. Are you saying that? Maybe you're saying that. Um, <laughs> well, I, I mean, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. They, I, I studied mechanical and I ended up in oil and gas. So yeah, cross training happens all over the place. It's kind of like engineering degrees are just badges of honor that then they're like, okay, you're, you're smart enough and qualified. You can go and manage projects, right? Well, it's a step more than that because the reliability and risk assessment techniques that were really pioneered in nuclear, right? Probabilistic risk assessment, you know, risk informed design kind of things. Um, those are applicable in a lot of industries. So at the time I, I went into aerospace, they really had an initiative to start applying probabilistic risk assessment and other reliability engineering works. So my first job was in the reliability and quality department doing nuclear style reliability assessments on aerospace systems. So that's how I got my foot in the door. That's awesome. Anyway. Yeah, I imagine the project management piece of that was really helpful for you and for the training before you doing that. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I came in doing mostly technical reliability analysis, right? Does the system work? Does it not work um, you know, the way it's supposed to? And eventually we branched off into looking at what makes projects and systems fail, right? And so I got into programmatic risk management. That was my foot in the door to, you know, again, taking those similar techniques of, you know, what are the events that can occur? What are the parts of the project that get impacted? What are the consequences? And then how do you manage to mitigate or prevent the consequences that you don't want? Um, so, yeah, you can go from the, the technical to the programmatic, which was a great experience to work on development projects. And I have to say, you know, that's a great thing coming to new scale, bringing that experience of technology development right, in other industries. Yeah. That's excellent. OK, so from the aerospace company, then you branched off to Zero Point Frontiers, right? Yeah. So we ended up moving to Huntsville, Alabama for um, my husband got a job there and ended up in Huntsville. And we teamed up with a couple of other business partners and started a little engineering services company in Huntsville. So I got a lot of uh, did a lot of learning on what it takes to run a business, um, what it takes to build customers, what it takes to put the systems and infrastructure in place. And we did a lot of architecture trades and other things for NASA Marshall, for some other NASA centers, for some commercial space customers. So it was a really great opportunity to, you know, continue to leverage the, the kind of technical expertise that I built and then, like I said, learn a lot about startups and running companies. That's awesome. One of our previous guests uh, is from Flive Energy, but I think they were in Huntsville also. Um, and they, <laughs> he characterized it as the mecca of engineering in kind of the, the South, which uh, <laughs> would Absolutely. you agree? Absolutely. <laughs> it's a, it, it's a, very tech friendly town. It's a very business friendly town. They've got a lot of resources yeah. for, for starting those kind of it's, it's a, it's a well educated community. Um, people come to Huntsville from all over the country to work. Um, you know, Redstone Arsenal is there. NASA Marshall is there. Uh, most of your big aerospace and defense companies have a presence in Huntsville. So awesome. definitely the right environment for that kind of thing. But yeah, eventually we sold that business. Um, and, I had a chance to take a step back and say, what do I want to be doing? And um, I really felt like I wanted to get back to those nuclear roots, right? Those things I was passionate about in school, 
I wanted to go and, and, and work on work, work with somebody who was doing, you know, those kind of things. And I, I yeah. literally stumbled across New Scale. I, um, I hadn't been following the industry. I've been out of the industry for 15 years. I wasn't really paying attention to what was going on. Um, and I, I just really stumbled into it. And they happened to be looking for someone who had risk management expertise. Um, they were setting, they were standing up their, their risk management program. And I thought, nuclear risk management i can do this this is great <laughs> yeah. i mean rel- relatively i mean the company started a while ago but 2012 right is when you got in so that's right yeah. that was relatively yeah. early <laughs> pretty early so we, i like to say it was if you know the, the the history of new scale you know they had a lot of kind of startup drama and, and kind of getting the company up and moving and then eventually floor came in as our our majority owner and investor um and then the Department of Energy came in also to support our development work. So I came in after Fleur had gotten involved, but before the Department of Energy had gotten involved. So that's kind of where I fit in the new scale timeline. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so why don't you give a kind of brief overview of the company? But what are you guys trying to do? What's uh, what's this new reactor technology? Yeah. Well, it's amazing. Uh, <laughs> what, what we're developing is, is called a small modular reactor or an SMR, if you hear people talking with the lingo. And what it makes our, the new scale SMR unique is that it, it's a scalable solution, right? So the intention is that you don't just put one of our power modules in a, in a, in a facility. You put four or you put six or you put 12 and it gives you this, this scalable um, platform for, you know, electricity generation. Each module can produce 77 megawatts electric. It's an integral pressurized water reactor design, which has some really fantastic safety features um, that are unique to the industry. Um, like to say it's a completely passive design. So, you know, in the event you, you need to actuate your safety systems, it happens with, with no operator action. You know, you don't need any AC or DC power. You don't need to add water to the system. Basically, some valves open automatically at loss of power, and the system can cool itself indefinitely. So from a safety perspective, it's groundbreaking, but it's also revolutionary from this modular perspective in terms of the way it can integrate with other energy systems, its ability to load follow, its ability to offer highly reliable power, its ability to integrate with hydrogen production or other kinds of things you want to do. So it's a really um, amazing technology that can fit uh, a variety of needs in the, in the energy industry. Yeah. yeah, and for listeners who may not be aware, the, the word small can be a misnomer. These are still, you know, some people when they think you're small or popular, they think, oh, yeah, it's like a shipping container, but that's like more like a micro-reactor. This is still like a full-scale power plant. It's oh, just, sure, yeah, you, right. You're, yeah. you're manufacturing these modules, and then you can ship them, and um, it's, still, it's still a large facility, but the, the critical components are smaller, and the kind of integration of the whole design is, is different from traditional power plants. Right. If you look at a, a, a large-scale PWR today, like a modern AP1000 or something, where you're, you, you, you know, you've got a, a core that's producing a gigawatt of power, um, you know, ours are 77 megawatts. And with that smaller core size is how we can get to some of these, you know, safety and passive feature benefits, right? Right. Then by stacking them together, you can get those benefits. If you put 12 of these together, you get yourself to pretty close to a gigawatt size facility, if that's what you're looking for. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, you you guys have a lot of public information now, which is really awesome. You know, your marketing team and communications team does a fantastic job. Um, yeah, I, I love the Titans of Nuclear series, and I think that you've got five 
different speakers on it. It kind of outlines the history, um, which is wonderful. Um, but from your view, Karen, how has the company kind of evolved over time? I mean, the power, these power modules started out to be rated smaller and they've increased in power size or rating since uh, you've been developing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that just comes with an improved understanding of the design, right? So initially you're pretty conservative in, in the assumptions sure. you make about how the design's going to operate. We've done an enormous amount of testing, right? So not only do we have a, a scaled electrically heated integral test facility at Oregon State University that we use to validate all of our thermal hydraulic codes, we've done steam generator testing at SIET in Italy, we've done critical heat flux testing on our fuel, right? So we have We've, we've built the test data and the analytical tools to really start to optimize what you can get out of this design. So if you look at where we were into the 50 megawatts versus 77, the design itself really hasn't changed. The fuel hasn't changed, right? The, 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 the overall size of the modules hasn't changed. What we've really discovered is how can you optimize it to get more, to get more out of it, right? It's really your understanding of the system and the potential capabilities of it. Yeah, your understanding of the, of the system, your your kind of confidence in your your analytical models, um, you know, your ability to kind of predict the performance that you're going to get out of it improves because we've really made that investment in tech, you know, in testing and demonstration. Right. Okay. So modern events. I mean, you guys had some recent uh, groundbreaking announcements with the the NRC and everything you've accomplished with them. Why don't you kind of walk us through uh, the regulatory process and kind of how far you've come and, and where you're at now. Okay. Well, I think regulatory process in the U.S., right, there's a, diff- a couple of different approaches you can take. What we chose with our initial design was to pursue what's called a design certification, right? So it's a review of the NRC, by the NRC of our design that results in a safety finding. And actually at the completion of the design certification, our design goes into the Code of Federal Regulations and becomes essentially an appendix of the law that says if you build this, it is safe, Right. Um, there's still site-specific licensing that has to happen, but we, we were successful in moving through that design certification process with the NRC. Um, it's currently going through the rulemaking process to get inserted into the Code of Federal Regulations. But for all intents and purposes, the NRC review is complete. The design has been certified, um, which is that's a kind of revolutionary for small modular reactors. It's, we're, we're, you know, it's never first in the industry, first, first in the industry to do, to do this, yeah. Yeah. Um, and we really. I hope we're, we're blazing the trail for the designs that come behind us in terms of how to really optimize this review process with the NRC and be successful at it. You may have heard that we're going through a second review for the upgraded design. So we're preparing at the end of this year to submit a, a standard design approval application to have the NRC do another review of the design for the upgraded version, um, just so that we can avoid having our customers have to do that step. So we'll, we'll go through another gotcha. review process there. The other big excitement we've had on the regulatory front is after many years of working with the NRC, we've recently gotten approval for our site boundary emergency planning zone, which is also revolutionary. Right. From 10 miles to just the site boundary. To just the site boundary. And, you know, what that enables is some some, operational cost savings, but it also gives you a lot more flexibility about where you can deploy this design. And we're really enthusiastic about things like coal plant replacement and what a site boundary EPZ lets you do is essentially become, for those communities that want to pursue it, as sort of a drop-in replacement for their, their retiring coal facilities, taking advantage of the, the, the transmission infrastructure around those facilities and everything else, the community of you know, trained workers who can operate um, you know, power plants and things like that. And, yeah, your site boundary EPZ really helps enable that. 
Yeah, I was super excited when I saw that news. I thought it was fantastic because the 10 mile buffer, I've always been a little puzzled by, but we, we can chat about that later. Um, so what's, what's the trajectory for the company? I mean, you're working on, you've got this approved design, um, but there's a little bit more process to go into it, um, before you actually can build the facility. I know you guys are working with, um, UAMPs and Tri Cities and, um, talk, talk to us about that first project. Okay, well, so what's going on with us in our first project? We've got the, the carbon free power project, as you said, with UAMPs, um, getting ready to deploy at the Idaho National Laboratory. We are working through their, they're working through their siting and licensing process to make that happen with the goal of um, kind of a late 2029 first module commercial operating date. Um, we are ready to deliver power modules to potential customers, uh, you know, as early as the end of 2027 if we had a customer that was in the queue and ready to do that. We're really, you know, the only SMR technology at the moment that is so ready to deploy near term. So what we're doing now is we are finalizing. So if we wanted um, one in Colorado or if I could convince Excel that we should convert some of these coal plants that they're closing by 2027 in Colorado, then you guys would come and build one here. We would come and we, we would work with you guys to get the, the, the siting <laughs> and the permitting, get the, you know, get the, the site work done, get those plants constructed, start delivering and starting up modules. Absolutely. Um, you know, cause we're really the only, the only SMR technology that is still ready to be deployed in the near term, like I said. So what we're doing is design finalization, finishing up the, the, the final detailed design work. So we are ready to initiate manufacturing. We're actually preparing to place orders for long lead materials for some of the pressure vessels that we need. Um, this quarter, before the end of this calendar year, we're targeting that. So it's really exciting. We'll be actually ordering material and, um, you know, getting ready to make these modules. And, you know, we can do that because we've gone through this extensive safety review and we've invested in the supply chain and, you know, the, the design work that needs to happen. That's super exciting. What's, what's the timeline for expecting the uh, demonstration project at INL to be online? As I said, I think we're targeting uh, end of 2029 for first module uh, commercial operating date there at the Idaho site. Gotcha. Okay. Well, you said by 2027, you could have a, uh, if you had a customer that wanted you to come and build, it could be as, as quickly as that. So we could, we could bring a module um, to their site. Yeah. It's, you know, yeah. The, the challenge with nuclear and, and with a lot of energy products is there's, there's a lot of pre-work that has to happen before you're ready to start. Right. You know, your environmental impact statements, your site and licensing work, your site preparation activities. Um, and then with nuclear, you get that added complexity of the, the licensing aspects that need to happen. So those do take on. But, yeah. 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 The environmental impact statements can be uh, daunting or challenging. So um, do you guys view yourselves as just a technology vendor or also as kind of a project developer? We're really a technology vendor. We really believe in this technology and we want to, you know, partner with those organizations, those utilities, those industries that want to deploy this technology. Um, sure. Sure. That makes sense. Um, prospective customers. I mean, I know X Energy's made their announcement to partner with Dow um, for like a site-specific system. Do you think there's opportunity for NewScale to deploy their system for something similar? Absolutely. Like I said, an integration with hydrogen production something that we're, um, we've done some feasibility studies on and are really excited to um, you know, get to the point where we can do some demonstration work there. So we've, we've been talking to a lot of companies about that possibility, and I'm, I'm optimistic that we will be able to do something like that. Yeah, 
super exciting. What are some of the biggest challenges that you guys have uh, ahead of you, I guess, between now and, and deployment of your systems? It, yeah, it's a good question in terms of challenges, because I think we've overcome a lot of those challenges that these early technologies experience, right? We've done the testing, we've done the demonstrations, we're building the supply chain, we've gone through the regulatory process. I think we've de-risked a lot of the items that potential customers are concerned about. We're getting into the time now where it's going to be a focus on project execution. And, you know, given you know, where we are in terms of, you know, kind of global energy crisis, what we're seeing in terms of, you know, power needs around the world, I think we're really well positioned to successfully get our first plant up and operating and then quickly thereafter get plant two and plant three running. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so it sounds like there could be a lot falling back on the customer, you know, to get their EIS in place and uh, identify a site that's uh, capable of hosting your guys' system. Is there an interest for you guys to have like an internal support structure for that or kind of a model built for customers and developers? Absolutely. I mean, we are providing a lot of um, COLA, which is your um, combined operating license applications. So we're providing COLA development support to CFPP. We certainly have a lot of expertise on the licensing side that we would love to kind of bring to bear to client projects where they need that kind of support. Um, you know, we've had interest, you know, internet, a lot of you know, domestic and international interest in this technology. Um, I think currently we've got 19 uh, signed and active memorandums of understanding with customers in 12 different countries. And so international licensing is an area, obviously, we're looking at, you know, how do we support our customers who aren't working under the NRC framework um, as they approach siting and licensing activities in those countries as well. Yeah. Can you list any of the countries? I'm curious. I mean, I, I know you've announced a bunch of them publicly, but yeah. Yeah. Well, two of the big ones in terms of near-term interest are in Romania and Poland. Um, those are probably kind of the uh, ones we're, we're focusing a lot of in attention on right now. In May, we announced that there have been some site selection activities going on in Romania, and we've been working with the U.S. Trade Development Association, the USTDA, um, to start kicking off some preliminary front-end engineering work at that site. So I think we announced uh, at the end of last week, I believe, that you know, we're, we're initiating that effort in Romania. In Poland, we also signed an agreement recently with KGHM, um, which is a, a, a big manufacturing entity in Poland that has a lot of interest in applying SMR technology there. So we have an early works agreement there and are working with them on some of those early licensing activities in that country. That's awesome. Uh, Romania and Poland are at the top of my list for places that I want to visit. Both beautiful places. Um, I, I haven't been, but every time I look at pictures, I'm like, man, this would be awesome to, to work there. Is there like, I haven't been guess, either. We've, a couple of folks from our team were, were, were there a few weeks ago, and um, at least two of them came back saying, we'd like to go back and vacation there because it was so <laughs> yeah. beautiful. I was going to say, is there like a, a sign-up list or people competing for who gets to be on the projects that go to Romania? <laughs> like, you know? I think our team is excited about the possibilities, right? It's, yeah. It's, it's, okay. So, I mean, you mentioned briefly the safety features. Um, can you touch on what might be different about new scales design that uh, common light water reactors or traditional light water reactors had that makes your guys' design different or inherently safer? Yeah, I think we hit on it a, a little while ago that, you know, what, what makes this design what you know, inherently safe is the passive nature uh, of, of the safety features in this design. Um, 
you know, the fact that the, the reactor can shut down and cool indefinitely with no operator action, no AC or DC power, um, no additional water. You know, another interesting thing on the safety features in terms of getting validation of these assumptions, it's not just new scale telling you that this design is simple and safe. We actually have approval from the NRC to operate one of these facilities, a 12 module facility with only three licensed operators, right? And so this is a real deviation from what the current nuclear industry requires for their, their larger reactor fleet. And one of the reasons- required currently. Usually you have you know a, a team per reactor, right? And what we're able to say right. is you only need three for the for a 12 module facility and you don't need a ship technical advisor. And that's a role that came in after Three Mile Island that's required in nuclear control rooms to have an independent technical expert in the room to help work through any issues that are being experienced, right? But our design has so few operator actions um, that what we were able to do through a really robust demonstration program, we brought in a team of, of, sort of new personnel. We trained them to operate the reactor using our simulator. We ran them through different scenarios, um, you know, workload assessments and everything else, and we're able to build up a data set to show the NRC that this design is so simple, so safe, so easy to operate that you know you could do it with a, a much reduced crew uh, versus a traditional facility, which is really cool. Nice. Were they uh, were they grad students that you brought in? That's <laughs> we brought. Sorry, this is something that my peers was, and I joke about all the time. We're like, look, as a safety case or argument for the industry, it's like, look at all these research reactors that we've got all across the country. There's no problem with those. They're run by grad students. And don't worry, grad students are very smart. I was one once, but like, yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. It, it was a good mix. We brought in some folks who had nuclear navy experience. We brought in some folks who had, um, you know, engineering backgrounds. There were some, you know, had fresh out of school you know, individuals ready to learn. So they, they really had a kind of a diverse team and were able to say that you can bring them up to speed quickly, more quickly than uh, normal reactor operator licensing process. And they can perform effectively as a team, you know, under intense workloads and make sure the system is operating safely. Gotcha. What's, what's the target price point or dollar per kilowatt hour that and I guess dollar per megawatt purchase that you guys are looking to deploy these at? It, it absolutely varies. And I think that the best way to characterize it is we think we are very cost competitive with alternative solutions, right? Um, okay. Everyone is seeing inflationary pressure at the moment on, you know, sure. equipment pricing, other kinds of things. But in our assessments, what we see is we remain um, you know, cost competitive with the next best choice. That makes sense. Well, and it's certainly if you add in the carbon-free benefit, then uh, in my opinion, you can't compete. Uh, other technologies can't compete, but that's just a truth of nuclear, right? Meaning you're dispatchable and carbon-free. Absolutely. And what you see, um, you know, in the U.S. on a state-by-state -state level, there are, are different, you know, different goals, different limitations, um, different requirements related to carbon-free energy. The state of Washington, for example, has some targets in terms of when they get to 100% carbon-free generation. Um, and then you can look at, you know, what is your next option if you don't do new nuclear, right? And how do you make that work? What does it cost? Gotcha. Okay. Um, so, Fran, let's zoom out just a little bit. Um, where do you see the broader or the nuclear industry um, progressing over the next two, five, ten years? I think I see, you know, we, we have a, a fantastic operating fleet that is, you know, kind of steady state producing baseload power for the country. But what I see in the future is this transformation from 
you know, carbon-based electricity generation to a more carbon-free solution and, you know, nuclear as a carbon-free baseload component of that. I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to start seeing utilities recognize the value of nuclear in their generating portfolio. Um, so I see, you know, increased interest in new nuclear construction in bringing new, in bringing nuclear in to replace those carbon generating sources and figuring out solutions such as the new scale technology that can integrate really well with renewables and other carbon free generation that they're building the other piece we didn't really hit on it with new scale that i think is a, a great sort of selling point for our design is our ability to integrate with those renewables so we can do load following so you, know, you can do load following in different ways with our system. Obviously, and you can. Can we dive into that a little bit? How, how does it load follow? I mean, with large plants, everyone says nuclear is great base load because you can't ramp up, ramp down. How does new scale design ramp up, ramp down, and how fast? And yeah. Absolutely. So because we have those smaller cores um, and we have multiple cores, you can adjust power levels faster. So you have a couple different ways to adjust power level. One is a seasonal load following. You can time your refueling outages in such a way that you are taking modules offline in the spring and fall um, when you don't need them and you're you know, at your peak power level summer winter. So there's a seasonal component of it. Then you can get into load following with the control rods, um, you know, adjusting the reactivity in the core um, up and down to to meet the needs of the grid. The other thing we have, which is a little bit unique to the new scale design, is 100% steam bypass, which allows you almost instantaneous adjustment in power levels being being released to the grid, right? You can you can take the steam, just completely bypass the turbine, put it back through the system um, when you need to make- I see, so it'll, you just change the flow of the power fluid that, yeah, you're boiling the steam and then it condenses back into water and loops around and instead of sending it through the turbine and dropping energy out that way, you just put it, recycle it essentially. Absolutely. So like I said, with those three different modes, you have a lot of flexibility in, in kind of being responsive to the grid needs. The other piece that we've been talking, the concept we've been talking about with hydrogen is, you know, if you have a facility that can produce both power and hydrogen, you could, you know, during the daytime hours when the solar is up and running, be using your facility to produce hydrogen. You know, after the sun sets, when you need the power, you move your facility over to power generation. And so we have a lot of ways you can optimize this depending on the power needs, which is gives you more flexibility than, you know, a one gigawatt, you know, large nuclear plant. Gotcha. I mean, you touched on it a little bit as you guys were trailblazers, but you're optimistic that other companies will be able to emulate uh, your progress and um, have kind of a network effect to bring more companies into the industry and, and really popularize the technology. Um, how, how do you guys think about competing versus collaborating in the space? It's a good question because, you know, initially there always is competition to get to the market and these kind of things, but there is enough room in this market for many technologies to be successful. So I think right. you know, we, we do participate. I mean, 80% in- of the world's power is still fossil fuels, and if people really want to decarbonize, then yeah, there's a huge market opportunity, right? <laughs> yeah, and so we do participate in a lot of industry initiatives through um, the Nuclear Energy Institute, through EPRI, um, you know, on advanced manufacturing, on, you know, incorporating security by designs, so which we do try and, and do things that are beneficial to the industry as a whole. And then, as I said, with some of the work we've done with the NRC, I really feel like we've blazed a trail um, for others to follow in terms of, you know, best practices for how to move through some of these licensing processes and where the bar is in terms of, you know, the, the data you need to bring to the table. 
Gotcha. So you guys got licenses in the U.S. What, what was the motivation for starting in the U.S. other than I think most of the company was American, so you can function and operate in your re- regulatory regime. But um, what was the motivation for starting here? And then do you think it would be easier to license internationally? Well, I think, you know, obviously being a U.S.-based company, that's a piece of it. But from our perspective, the United States Nuclear Regulatory Commission is the gold standard um, and you know, really kind of the world leader in nuclear regulation. And we think that the by getting the NRC design approvals and, and with the NRC's sort of lead position uh, globally in terms of you know, reactor safety reviews, that that's really going to be um, a useful basis from which to pursue licensing in other countries. You know, there are some countries that, um, you know, really value that initial NRC review and, and will build on that. And so I think that that gives us a great starting point to kind of go anywhere in the world. Gotcha. That's been my experience, too, meaning some people think it'll be easier to license elsewhere, but every time that I speak to someone internationally, they, they always think, well, we, we trust what the Americans do. So, okay, well, this has been fantastic. Uh, I'm going to dive into some questions that we ask all our guests. Um, so what's what's one thing about the energy industry that uh, scares you or keeps you up at night? That we're not moving fast enough, I think. You know, I think if the following question is going to be, you know, what am I excited about? It's, it's I'm excited about the transformation that's coming, but I am also nervous that we aren't moving quickly enough to be ready when that transformation really comes. Right. We're setting clean energy targets. I mean, you're hearing the conversations going on at, at COP27 right now about about clean energy targets, about carbon reduction targets. And I'm a firm believer that we need to be really investing today if we want to meet those goals in 2030 or 2035. So I think that, that's what keeps me up at night is can we get the, the, the momentum that we need in this industry to, to make the investment now to meet the goals we have in the future? I'll, I'll put you on the spot and make you piggyback on that. What, what are one or two things that would help to accelerate or build that momentum? Ooh. You know, I think we're doing some of them in that we are offering a lot of government support for those technologies that we think are important, right? As I said, the U.S. Department of Energy has been a great partner to us and to the Carbon Free Power Project, recognizing the criticality of that. I think another piece of that is going to be a concerted effort on the part of, you know, governments or world economies on what it takes in terms of manufacturing and supply chain readiness. I'd really like to see um, some more focused initiatives there building up supply chain capabilities so we can produce these modules at the rates we'd love to be able to produce them, right? Yeah, great, great ideas, great recommendations. Maybe also education, right? Doing podcasts with folks to get oh, the word absolutely. out. absolutely, <laughs> a lot more podcasts. Well, and I'm really hopeful, you know, even with this conversation, of the fact that people are really starting to yeah. acknowledge how important new nuclear is in that future energy vision, right? That, you know, the role it plays, base load, integration with renewables, um, you know, we talk about energy density, the energy density of nuclear versus other power sources and kind of what that brings to the table as you're looking to kind of transform your energy infrastructure. Gotcha. Okay. Well, this is Young Professionals in Energy Podcast. So what, what advice do you have for young professionals in the energy industry? You've got lots of jobs open. I've looked. It's, uh, you know, they, I'm sure they can apply, right? <laughs> Absolutely. We have, a, we have a lot of jobs open. We've, we've been working to build a robust intern program for those who are in school and, and interested in opportunities, um, give them a chance to 
test out some different areas in, in, in you know, nuclear development and, and see what fits. But I think, and maybe that's it. The, my advice would be try different things. Um, take opportunities as you're presented them, whether or not you think they're exactly the right next thing you want to do. Um, you know, I took this career turn into the aerospace industry and I gained so much value out of spending time in a different industry other than energy and then bringing those learnings back um, to, you know, my job today, right? With aerospace, you're doing a lot of systems development, a lot of technology development at a much faster pace than you're doing it in nuclear. And so to be able to have that experience and bring it back and then apply it to something you're passionate about, like nuclear, is really cool. So I think, you know, don't be afraid to do things that are slightly skewed, slightly, a little little off from where your, your ultimate goal is, because in the long run, it's going to benefit you. Totally agree. Totally agree. Um, okay. Well, Karen, uh, lead us on an optimistic note. Predict the future. Tell us, uh, tell us what's going to happen in the next five, ten years or two years. Well, let's talk five to ten, because that's the timeline where I think you're going to start seeing these new scale plants deployed and operating. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll be at the nth of a kind point of deploying this technology. And I'd like to think that we're going to see new scale plants, not just in the U.S., but in other parts of the world, you know, generating clean energy, bringing jobs, you know, integrating well with renewables, operating safely and smartly and cost effectively. So, yeah, I think we're, you know, we're so close. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited for it. Uh, the day that we can do a uh, virtual site tour uh, of one of the plants instead of just talk about it over a podcast, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and if you haven't had the chance to come to Corvallis and see our control room simulator, I highly recommend. When, when people invite me, I do take them up on their invitations, <laughs> but not everyone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, this, this has been great. Any, anything else that you want to add or chat about? No, it's a, it's a really exciting time. And I think we're doing exciting things at, at new scale. We want to change the world with this technology and what, and what it can bring. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. Excellent. Karen Feldman, thanks so much for the time. We appreciate it.